Live from Dreerber, this is the Locktune Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. I am so excited to say that this episode <laughs> begins our reread of Nona the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. A couple of notes before we begin. First of all, we have a lot more time to cover Nona the Ninth than we did to cover Gideon and Harrow. So we'll be releasing reread episodes approximately every other Tuesday with bonus episodes thrown in here and there. We'll also have more time to answer listener questions, so keep sending those our way. Also, if you haven't read all of Nona the Ninth yet, please know that we will spoil every inch of this book starting in this very episode. So only listen if you've read the whole thing already. Yes. And also, if you missed it, we recently created a Locktomb series creator hub on our website. We've already had a couple folks come on board since our last episode. So check that out. We've listed a bunch of artists and creators who make Locktomb art and merch, along with links to their online stores. So if you go to locktombpod.com slash fan merch, check it out. You can support the fan community. We don't take any proceeds at all from the Creator Hub, but if you would like to support us here at the Locktomb Pod, I've designed some stickers for us. They are just our logo. They're pretty cool. <laughs> you can find them also on our website at locktombpod.com. When you buy a sticker, it helps us cover the cost of making this fun podcast. Heck yeah. So with all that said, today we're covering the very beginning of Nona the Ninth. We're kind of easing in. So we're starting with the guest list and poems that open the book through chapter one. In this section, we get a taste of the structure of the book and of course meet our titular character, Nona. No, 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 no. But before we get started, Amy, I've got a question for you. Oh, yeah. What is Protessa Lawis not good at? (laughs) I'm I'm afraid. What? Giving head. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) He gave Harrow his head. Oh, right. I guess he would give his. Yeah, that's true. Oh, okay. Well, you could, you, I guess you could tell that joke in any direction. <laughs> we really need to mark this podcast as explicit. <laughs> All right. An excellent start to Nona jokes. <laughs> Even though Protessa Laos is not in Nona at all. Not, yeah, 0%. Not a single mention. No, no. All right, let's jump right in. We start with the guest list, which is basically the dramatis personae for this book. And it is Nona telling Camilla who she wants at her birthday party. And it was actually released before Nona came out. And at the time, I think it was like one of the first things to be released. Yeah. And it was really confusing. (laughs) It was. And it was also a totally different vibe, which tracks, right? Because this book Mm -hmm. feels like a very different book from the previous two But the dogs to invite to birthday party was just really adorable and gives you a sense of who Nona is before we get to meet her. And then this members of gang to invite to birthday party was like, no clue. I know. What this was. (laughs) Absolutely out of the blue. I do feel like, you know, if you're a fanatic, you would have fairly quickly guessed that the captain and crown him with many crowns were uh judith and corona beth respectively so i think i think that was the one thing that it kind of 
cleared up. And I think that that got people thinking that maybe the looked after me, taught me, went to work for me were not actually Judith, Corona, Beth, and Camilla, but a different group of people because that would have been kind of a weird thing to have here. You know what I mean? Right, because at the end, also notably still under Blood of Eden is a list item that says, and you three. Right. Which in parentheses, it says, good to know, signed C, which now we know is Camilla. Right. So, you know, it's still confusing when it first came out. But now looking back at this, we're like, oh, yeah, totally. This makes sense. Also, sad. We really wanted this birthday party. It didn't happen. I know. <laughs> First spoiler of yeah, the we, pod. We were really promised a birthday party and all we got was a description of a funny t-shirt. <laughs> Which, to be fair, was was pretty good. Yeah. We move right along. The book starts with two poems. I think the other book started with one. And the first poem is the poem that we've seen before. It's the poem. How does it go? One ring to rule them all. One for the emperor, first of us all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. One right, right. for the lictors who answered his call. Yeah, that, that guy. <laughs> Your classic nine house poem. And then the second poem is a poem that was also released before No Note came out. And it's a really beautiful poem. As we've said before, Tamsin Muir, endlessly talented. And it seems to be, I mean, you know, we could really pull this apart, but it seems to be from Electo's point of view in mm -hmm. conversation with John. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of like presumptions we can make about, you know, when this conversation happened. I will say that at the end of this poem, Electo, presumably Electo is saying, you held off the sword. I still love you. And it cuts off. And later in the book, when Electo actually wakes up in the tomb with Harrow kind of standing over her, the first thing that Electo says is you. Right. And so I can't remember who first pointed that out, but it was a really great catch. Yeah. And so putting that together, we can presume that this conversation is happening, or a version of it, between Electo and John as John is putting her into the tomb. Right. And he doesn't kill her, but he knocks her out in one way or another, right as she says, you. And then, you know, for her kind of time stops. Mm -hmm. That's a great catch. It's also, one, this poem is like really catchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and I love that this also gives us a window into John, even before we start this book, mm -hmm. where we really get to know him even more. But Electo's asking, what is mourning? And John says, when everyone who fucked with me is dead, when everyone we loved has gone or fled. Mm -hmm. That's mourning. Empty is just another word for clean. And I feel like there's a reference. I think it's in this book. Yeah, it is. And when we get to it, we'll talk about it. But where John is talking about just like knocking everyone out again, yeah. murdering everyone and just kind of starting over. Right. He's already done this once before. And so... In this poem, he's basically saying, I'm not done. I'm going to go after those people, those billionaires or whatever who, who fled. Yeah, it almost feels to me like this means that he is just using the nine houses as a vehicle to get rid of the billionaires or these people that he has this vendetta against. And then once they're gone, 
and you know presumably once the resurrection beasts are gone and things are kind of wiped clean then he'll get rid of the nine houses and then start over again with sort of his second <laughs> draft what an egomaniac jesus christ yeah. he's he's a bananas mm-hmm. character dangerous guy that's yeah. for sure so we then start the book proper with actually one of the the john info dump chapters which are <laughs> honestly like such a gift i feel like it was it was something i did not expect but basically there are a series of chapters through this book and it kind of ends up being i think whenever nona is asleep in a similar way to how the canaan house redux mm. scenes happen when harrow was asleep in harrow the ninth mm. you'll notice that it that this happens i have to we'll have to see if it's every single time but almost every time i notice that these chapters happen when nona is asleep and when we get to the first nona chapter she's just woken up so these chapters are structured in this very strange way first of all they start with a bible verse Yeah, in this first John chapter, John 28, and I think the verse is in John. (laughs) Nice. I mean, there's a million different translations, right? But the essence is, then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. I'm assuming this is like when Jesus is like, they can't find him in the tomb where he's buried. Yeah. I don't actually know if these Bible verses are relevant to the story thematically. I think they do spell out they are that cipher. Right, right. But in reading the actual Bible verses that go with the um, like the chapter, it doesn't really seem to match, except that, you know, it is the Gospel of John. And so there's a lot of relevant stuff, but it doesn't seem to match up exactly. Right. Right. Amy, do you want to describe the cipher just for those who may not have any idea of what you were just talking about? (laughs) Right. So thanks actually to listener Nikki for writing in and reiterating the cipher, which is a very simple alphabet cipher. The number just corresponds to the number or the letter of the alphabet. So John 28 is 20 refers to the 20th letter of the alphabet, which is T, and then 8 is the 8th letter of the alphabet, which is H. So we've got a T and an H. So (laughs) that's what we're going to (laughs) be looking at with these chapters. I don't think that they're actually matched up thematically with the Bible verse necessarily, but they are a cipher, which is wild. (laughs) It is wild. Also, like, so... The layers. It's so clever to like be able to both have the frame of Bible verses, right? You know, and also it's a cipher. <laughs> I know. On a scale of one to ten, how proud of herself do you think Tamsin Muir was? <laughs> I hope she was really proud of herself. If I were her, I would be eleven to twelve. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So the structure of these chapters is that John is speaking to someone in a dream, and it always says in the dream. So, I mean, dreams are kind of weird in these books, but they are in a dream of some kind. And basically, John is describing everything that led up to the apocalypse. And 
I think at first, when I first started reading this chapter, I assumed it was Electo that he was speaking to, but we'll get to that at the very end. That's not quite true, or at least not entirely true. Yeah. If true at all. (laughs) Right. I thought it was interesting too, because at the beginning of this chapter, John is listing his degrees, like literally his university degrees. And if we had any doubt before about this having begun on our world and our earth and our reality, it's really confirmed here. So he's talking about places on earth now. Yeah, like he's from New Zealand. <laughs> that's that's the deal. Yeah. And if we there was any doubt about that before, it's now confirmed. I also like of course John is listing off his credentials. I know. <laughs> like it reminds me of like that dude that you meet who's like in his 50s and the first thing that he says about himself is like I went to Yale. Yeah. <laughs> or you're like, dude, no one cares. I I whatever. Yeah, I'm like of ago. course John is talking about his degrees from like 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Like, come on, man. <laughs> But I I love that this is the first chapter in this book because mm-hmm. we are just craving backstory from our favorite lictors. And so not only is John listing out his degrees and talking about like getting this grant to start a project that is basically going to take all like 11 billion people off the planet so that the planet can heal. Mm -hmm. And like, of course, he's one of four people responsible for this. I know. Which is so weird. But I guess the most important things in our lives are underfunded. So this is, this tracks. Yeah. But the way that we're introduced to some of the people that he's referring to are with a letter and a dash. So it was me and A and M at the start. And so we can piece together that A is Augustine, Mm -hmm. M is Mercy Morn. He talks about C, who is Cassiopeia. And then we even get a reference to G, which is Gideon, the first. Mm -hmm. And we learn that Augustine was a scientist. Mercy Morn was also a doctor and a scientist. Gideon was an engineer, which actually kind of surprised me. And Cassiopeia was the lawyer that was brought on. And so... That was just like really fast intel that we got right away. If we weren't already just totally riveted by this book, (laughs) we are drawn in really quickly. Right. I also thought it was kind of interesting because he is talking about 11 billion people, I think, is the number or is it 10 billion? So I just was looking up population projections because I was like, when is this happening? This obviously isn't happening right now. But just FYI. The population is projected to get to 10 million by 2057. 10 billion. 10 billion. And then it won't be up to 11 billion until well past 2100. So So we've got some time. But they were really like, you know, and we'll get into this as more of the story unfolds, but they were really down to the wire. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. So this is happening on, on our Earth sometime not too far in the future. And they're planning to basically freeze all of humanity in these sort of cryo cans and ship them off to space to, I think, wait until Earth heals itself. Is that what we... 
I assumed that there was another planet that they were all going to go to, but maybe not. Maybe they were just going to like be in one of the installations and, and wait it out. I don't know that we ever get total clarity on that. Right, right. I mean, this is not a hard science fiction book. So (laughs) that kind of stuff is not really what we're looking for. After John describes this, we get a description of where these two people are sitting, John and whoever is listening. And they're on a beach, and they seem to be in sort of a post-apocalyptic world. They're eating thighs, which, (laughs) I mean, sounds like could be human Mm. thighs, which is gnarly. (laughs) And the person who is narrating this says the smoke hurts them, but not for too long, and that nothing in this place ever hurt them for very long. And they also drink from the sea like dogs. They drink from the sea and they're also hungry at the same time. So like you can you can gather that the narrator in this chapter and John are like very connected. Right. Which is another clue, you know, is another kind of point towards this is probably Electo who is who is narrating this. We'll get to a little bit of a debate about that. Right. What I find interesting is when John is still kind of describing what had happened, you know, 10,000 years ago. I think it's Mercy Morn who's basically like, John, we're going to get fucked. (laughs) Right. These trillionaires, they only care about themselves. These other ships that are being built, John is referring to these other ships being built. And he's like, oh, it's nothing. And she's like, no, no, they're, they're, we're getting fucked. Mm-hmm. And he basically shoots her down and is like, don't worry about it. And he says, you know, we are the ones who are getting everyone off this planet and wealthy men always look for the exit. So, of course, they're going to be on board with this project because it's getting them out of here. And John was wrong. Yeah, because they, they end up shutting the project down kind of out of the blue and It's really interesting. There's a moment here where John is describing this and how angry he was and how there was nothing he could do. And he wasn't, they didn't know at this time, like why they were dropping out, obviously investing in something else, but they didn't really have the information yet. And he says to this person he's talking to, you know, the worst part, she cried. She and A both cried in each other's arms like babies. They were so fucking scared. And that's just such a distinct callback to the end of Harrow. Mm. Right after Mercy Morn kills John, when Augustine and Mercy cry, like holding each other. Yeah. Their relationship is very fraught, the Augustine-Mercy Morn relationship. But I do find this sad and bittersweet and kind of cute. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, think about how intense... (laughs) Like, if this if this is a real thing, like, these four people are responsible for basically shepherding 11 billion people off the planet. And, like, it's a high-stakes situation. Mm. So there's, like, a lot of pressure here. And then at the very last second, these douchebag trillionaires pull the plug on the whole project. And it's, you're totally helpless. I mean, I would be crying in my frenemy's arms, too. yeah. I do think it's interesting a couple of things about this cast of characters. First of all, John is, in fact, a scientist. We guessed this like a while ago. 
he's this sort of whiz kid scientist of some kind who knows exactly like what his specialty is, but he seems to be sort of the mastermind of this project. But also, I cannot imagine that their real names are Augustine, Mercy, Morn, Cassiopeia, and Gideon, right? No, they're, they're not. That's why they're dashed out. They're like the names from before. Right. I kind of wonder if we'll ever know what they are. <laughs> I know. I feel like it's interesting that some of them are super out there like Mercy Morn. I've never heard that name before. Yeah. Anyway, these names are dashed, so it's just the first letter and then a, and then a dash, so we don't actually know what their real names are, but helpfully, he kept the first letter of each name. Can you imagine if he didn't and we had to like <laughs> figure that shit out? <laughs> You can't make it that hard. We've been through a lot in this series. You got to like give us something. <laughs> uh-huh. So this first bit of this chapter sets up the whole pre-apocalypse Earth situation. John is a scientist. He has a project that's trying to rescue everyone from like a dying Earth that I think is, you know, basically wrecked by climate change and other issues. And he's got this small, very tight team that view him as their leader and really trust him. But he is betrayed by the billionaires who are funding him. And then, you know, we kind of continue on from there. But that's what we get in this first chapter. I remember being like, oh, sweet. This is way more information than I (laughs) ever thought I would get. And I think the, you know, the chapter ends with, Electa or you know our narrator asking John like so what did you do when they abandoned the project and he says a damned thing didn't I and then she asks him is this the part where you hurt me I don't know about you Amy but I I don't think that I fully put together that this person here and Nona was the earth (laughs) you know but like reading it over and over again I'm like oh yeah this obviously makes sense I feel like when I first read this, I was like, is this some princess or like, some, like, I don't know what, what is it that everyone on the planet is like looking to this person to be like, is she going to be okay? She's so sick. Like, what's going on? I like didn't fully put it together right from the beginning. But the big conundrum here is that at the end of this chapter, we think, okay, maybe this is Electo. All of a sudden we, we get her saying, I still love you. And God says, you always say that, Harrow Hark, which mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I was like, what the fuck is happening here? And I'm curious what your theories are. I have one, but. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some theories that are like, Electo and Harrow have been the same all along. And I just don't buy that. I do think that this is Harrow experiencing this, but I think it's Electo's memory or in a way they've become intertwined. But I do think that there are certain things like, is this the part where you hurt me? That's a that's a lecto. I think Harrow is a, a human being who has been alive for 19, 20 years and is currently in like some sort of underwater soul space inside of Electo's body. And I think that's just some wires are being crossed. And we also know that God that John is currently like, you know, having sex with a bunch of cohort officers and, you know, drinking too much somewhere else. So it's not like this is happening IRL. 
this is a dream, but this is definitely a combo Harrowhark Electo. But I think it's definitely Electo's memories. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's true up until maybe one of the last John chapters. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I kind of thought about it as like, you know how when Paul happens, right? And he's trying to remember something, or they're trying to remember something, and they say that their memory is split. They can't quite place the memory. I kind of feel like that's sort of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Not that Harrow and Electo are the same person or being at all. I definitely Mm -hmm. don't believe that. But they have been intertwined for so long. And it makes sense that they would be able to see through to each other's memories in some way but then also like they've both been through a lot so it makes sense that they would be kind of like messed up together right so i don't know i love the mystery here that was really fun Mm -hmm. to start the book out in that way i also was thinking mel about when gideon is narrating that part at the end of harrow and she's talking about how it was weird that some of Harrow's memories seemed like her own and then some she like really had to dig for. Yeah. Or like consciously think of. And I feel like it's the same sort of thing. These souls are sort yeah. of intertwined. It's like a memory mix up. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the same page. I mean, I'm curious what our different listeners think. I don't, you know, there's not like one right way to read these books. So I am curious, like, what, what folks think. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think that's our best guess. Yeah. And it could be a memory or it could be, like, sort of a replay of a memory where John and Harrow are sort of, like, replaying a memory that John ha- actually had with Electo. And Harrow's, totally. like, playing the part of Electo, you know? And that would kind yeah. of explain the very last bit where Harrow does kind of walk off or Harrow Electo, whatever, to go to the tower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's... It's not dissimilar from the river bubble stuff in Harrow, where Harrow made up a whole <laughs> fake memory and like mm-hmm. brought souls in to act the parts and they didn't fully know what was happening. Like, I think it's kind of a similar thing happening here. Right. All right. Should we move on to chapter one? Now that we've spent <laughs> almost 40 minutes getting through two pages. <laughs> I know. I mean, the John chapters, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, it's true. You know, the Nona chapters, at least in day during day one, I feel like are less complicated. But these first couple chapters set the tone. Like there's a lot for us to kind of talk through because we're setting the stage. I think it'll shorten, mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so we move on from the John chapter to our first Nona chapter. So this is chapter one. And it's also the beginning of day one. So under the day one header, which is sort of the act, the act one of this book, it says, regarding Nona, hot sauce is watchful. The city has a bad day. Nona gets a bedtime story five days until the tomb opens. So right off the bat, we're like, oh, (laughs) cool. Okay, the tomb is opening. (laughs) I just need to say I really appreciate these little like summaries of the day Mm -hmm. because when we did our reread of Gideon and Harrow, my summaries of each chapter looked exactly like this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this is very helpful. Now I don't have to do this part. And this first chapter basically just covers this first bit regarding Nona. 
it's just all set up. It's also a little bit tricky. These these chapters are tricky, especially at the beginning, because we're basically getting a ton of information secondhand from the view of a six-month-old who's actually a multi-billion-year-old in a 19-year-old's body. <laughs> so it's super confusing. It is. And we don't even, again, we don't actually know that yet. Like, we don't know that Nona is Electo is Earth. Like, we don't actually know that here. What we're trying to figure out is more of a binary question, which is, is Nona Gideon or is Nona Harrow? Well, I was going to say that I started this book thinking that it was Electo. And so I feel like for me, it was more like confirmations. Hmm. I didn't really think it was either Gideon or Harrow, although we knew almost immediately that it was Harrow's body. Yeah. But it's not presented that way. No. Although I think by the end of chapter one, we're quite certain that this is Harrow's body, just from mm -hmm. like the different descriptions that are given. I mean, congrats, Amy. I'm glad that you knew that. I didn't know. I was like, <laughs> maybe it is Harrow. Maybe they mashed together and like this is their new persona or like maybe like it's another lobotomy situation yeah. <laughs> where, you know, like I I wasn't sure. Yeah. I think I just said decided and I was so desperate to be right about my original <laughs> theory that I just held on to it really hard. <laughs> well, it worked out for you. It worked out for you. Yeah, I got lucky. <laughs> so the chapter opens up with a really lovely dialogue and recap between Nona and who we come to find out very soon is Camilla. And Camilla is basically asking Nona to recount a dream and we learn that this is a pretty regular practice, that every time Nona wakes up, Camilla is writing notes about whatever dream that Nona had. And so the dream that Nona describes to Camilla at the beginning of this chapter is someone's hands are around her and she, someone is on top of her. I think Nona refers to this person as the painted face is on top of me, that she's in the safe water. And something is pushing at her. She's under the water. It's in her mouth. It's up her nose. And there are hands around her. And that Nona is vibing with all of this. Yeah, <laughs> like, she's... Nona's into it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think what we learn later just from other things that are coming up that get revealed in the book is that the painted face is actually... Gideon's face mm -hmm. and that the hands I think are Gideon's hands and Cam and Powell presumably drew a photo of Gideon drew a picture of Gideon at one point to mm -hmm. give to Nona to like say like is this who you're seeing and Nona's like yeah yeah it is and this is interesting because in a similar way to how Harrow seems to be or our guesses seems to be experiencing Electo's memories Electo, a.k.a. Nona, is seeming to experience some of Harrow's memories, because this seems like pretty clearly a callback to the pool scene. Yeah, totally. But that's pretty much all she has for Cam. And as soon as Cam turns off the recorder and stops transcribing the stream, Nona starts dressing herself. And this it's it's just we're just getting to know this character in these chapters. And she is. <laughs> The most wonderful, incredible thing. 
ever. She's like, like she is reads very innocent and carefree, not mm-hmm. like totally carefree, but just joyful maybe is the word. Right. And like really funny. Like she doesn't have a total control over her impulses. She has trouble dressing herself. We kind of learn about the journey that Nona's been on to getting to the place where she can dress herself. Right. She's really giddy and like just seems like it is automatically like a very lovable character. Yeah. And I think we also learn there's a reference to tantrums that Nona has had in the past. We learn more about those tantrums a little bit later, but what we know here in this moment is that it's not good when Nona has a tantrum. Yeah, this was very portentous. Yeah. <laughs> At the first time I read this, I was like, oh, we're going to see a tantrum for sure. <laughs> and we see a tantrum. We yeah. do. We do indeed. <laughs> but even just the writing here, it, like the way that Nona's character is written, like the narration is written, is also like what a fun exercise it must have been to write this character yeah from their perspective I don't know it just would have been it had to have been really fun to write I know I feel like of course Tamsin Muir probably wants to be doing other things after Electo and but I mean she's really kept it fresh for herself yeah I think that's pretty intentional I know there was like an interview that she did on one of the tour podcasts I think we called it out on Twitter where she talks about like how important it is to have stories told from different perspectives and like what you think is true from one perspective changes a little bit from a different perspective. And so, yeah, it has to be like really fun, really fun to write this. This is also the chapter where we see that Nona really does like crush on Cam quite a bit. <laughs> is this going to be our ship fight of the, of the book? Is this? Wait, you don't think Nona has a crush on Cam? I feel like I feel like Nona's crush on Cam is extremely platonic. Well, yeah, no, I totally agree. <laughs> it's like it's like a crush that you would have when you're, I don't know, in like third grade, right? I mean, she has a crush on so like she just thinks everyone is so beautiful and like perfect. Yeah, she's like, wow, they're just so hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, also like Nona doesn't have a type. She has a crush on Cam. She has a crush on Corona. Those two could not be more different from each other. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like redheads. She doesn't like redheads, which is so funny. I know. <laughs> Brutal slam on redheads. <laughs> But anyway, the no, I'm not going to argue with you there. I, I also think it's platonic kind of thing. But it's really cute and it comes up. It's like a theme throughout the whole book. Mm-hmm. Right. And it seems through this narration, we learn that Cam and Nona are living in an apartment building, which we sort of already knew from what was released beforehand and from the end of Harrow. And then we learn that Pira is here as well. And... Cam sends Nona out to eat breakfast, and Nona asks Cam to say, I love you, Palamides, from Nona, to, like, write that down. And that's the first – I remember when I read that the first time, I was like, whoa. But we very quickly learn what she means. We move out to breakfast, where my crush, Pira DeVay, is, is, you know (laughs) – 
hanging you out. And Pierre De- yeah, Pierre DeBay is a funny, just a really great character also. And we're getting a lot of like domestic life here. And Pira is sort of the cornerstone of mm-hmm. domestic life for this funny group of people. Mm-hmm. So she's making eggs. These books are just wild. They're in an, like a modern apartment building-ish in this sort of war-torn city making eggs for breakfast. <laughs> Pira makes an ass joke and... Nona laughs really hard, and so Pira tells her to go make a mark under ass joke on a board up on the wall, which we now know is they're trying to figure out if this person is Harrow or Gideon. And so ass joke is a point for Gideon, which is very funny. Right. (laughs) We also, for the record, don't fully know what the deal is with those tallies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But like, but we can assume that that's, that is what's happening. And I feel like we talked about this in our reaction episode that after I read this, I, and I was like going back and reading part of Harrow where Gideon comes back in Harrow's body, like Gideon makes so many ass jokes. Uh So this is really funny. I also think it's really cute that Pal and Cam know Harrow and Gideon well enough to try to like categorize their tendencies to like scientifically track who Nona might be. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's also just really silly that this is the way that they're trying to track things. But I think like many readers who didn't come in with just like a very stubborn theory, (laughs) Cam and Pal and Pira are as confused. I don't think that they have any inkling that it could be someone else really until the end so they're really really stuck like their theory they have a stubborn theory and that it's either Gideon or Harrow so yeah I feel like Pira knows I think Pira has a third guess here I do think that Pira knows this entire book Pira knows more than she lets on for sure yeah but right now she's just braiding Nona's hair so (laughs) (laughs) there's not much to read into that Except that it says that regarding Nona's hair, every fourth haircut day they cut it, but not every haircut day because it was a pain and because people noticed your hair growing less when it was already long. And so this was the first moment I think that it was fairly obvious that this, or there was a good chance that this was Harrow's body. Because as we know, Ianthe fucked with her (laughs) (laughs) hair follicles to spurt out extra hair. So now she just has like perma-long hair. It's so good. It's so <laughs> funny. We also, through this kind of Pira braiding known as hair, get a picture of the building that they live in, which is important. It's a pretty shitty building. Mm-hmm. It's falling apart. No one can find the landlord. Their upstairs neighbors have military ties. Their downstairs neighbors are cops. They have sniper tape on the windows right this is a really sketchy building that this motley crew is living in yeah it's it's really not it's not nice it's not lux and so as you know nona and pira are together camilla walks in but guess what it's not Camilla who walks in. And I lost my shit when I first read that. 
What a beautiful moment. I feel like it's like the third season of a sitcom and like an a-, a beloved actor just walked onto the set and everyone's like clapping like, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. That's kind of how I felt when Palamides came back here. Yeah, definitely. It's our boy Palamides and he's in Camilla's body, but he's very obviously, I mean, Tamsin just has such a good voice for each of these characters and it's immediately, even if Nona didn't describe it, it he's obviously Palamides and he starts talking to Pyrrha. As we know, Palamides is a little bit more forthcoming and talkative than Camilla and they're talking about... <laughs> meat and the black market and how Palamides couldn't even afford meat if he wrote hardcore pornography. (laughs) And this just, you know, they're just a little found family. And I was, okay, this is just my own personal anecdote, but Palamides says that Camilla doesn't want him to write hardcore pornography because she says that she doesn't want their last gift to the universe to be tales of people mashing birthday cakes beneath their bottoms. I gotta say, I, I when this was when I read this, I was like, "What? Okay." And then just weeks ago, I was invited to this party at like it was like at a bar. This is not like nasty. This is like at a public bar, dude. <laughs> but it was dyke night. But all of the dykes sit on cakes, and it's like sexy. And I was like, yeah. "Oh my god!" I know. I learned about this. See, like this book is incredibly educational. <laughs> and then I didn't go. <laughs> I can't believe I cannot believe you didn't go. Come on. I was probably recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I feel like we get to see like a much more vulgar side of calamities in like the best way. I know. Here. This kind of threw me off a little bit. I was like, "Oh, okay, like we're we're that close now." Yeah, like, <laughs> this is this is the conversation we're having. Pure even says you're not a prude. Yeah, which who knew? Yeah, I think one other little tidbit before moving on to the conversation that happens between Palamides and Pyrrha that's probably one of the most important things that happens in this chapter is just that Nona hates eating food, mm-hmm. and she dreams about it being cold. She doesn't like to eat, and so there's this constant battle throughout this book of Camilla, Palamides, and Pyrrha all trying to get Nona to eat so that she can keep Harrow's body alive, basically. But Nona really, really hates eating food, and so they're always, like, bribing her in these weird ways to try to get her to eat. And while Pyrrha's like, eat your eggs, Palamides is like, Pyrrha, let's go talk. I want to, like, talk to you about something. And so Pyrrha and Palamides go into another room to have a conversation, and of course... Nona's like, I'm going to listen through the Mm -hmm. door. And so because of that, we get a partial conversation between Palamides and Pyrrha. Right. And I think that probably the best way to go through this is just to say what I I think we have pieced together about this conversation. Basically, Palamides and Pyrrha are talking about where they're at in their goals and timelines. And A couple of things. It seems pretty clear immediately that there's some sort of deadline around Nona from Blood of Eden, also from Future Clues. I think we can piece together that basically Pyrrha has been using her position as, I think, a demolition worker or a construction worker to search for the sixth house oversight body. And Palamides is really pushing her to search more dangerous sites 
We also learn that there's the nine houses have like a barracks because this is, you know, we we learn through out this book that this is a steel planet, or at least it's a planet where they took a bunch of people who have been evacuated from a steel planet. Unclear if it was actually originally a steel planet itself, but all of these different refugees from all of these planets live here and that they're, you know, in the past it was very heavily overseen by the nine houses, but now there's just a ninth house barracks and there are just a couple of nine house soldiers left in there and blood of eden is active in the area and pura doesn't want to get to search for the sixth house oversight board too close to the barracks because blood of eden will figure out that they're searching is that right yeah i think that's mostly right i the only thing that i would add is that Palamides is basically like trying to save everyone Mm -hmm. and so the people from the nine house the cohort that is trapped in their barracks like they're starving to death and Palamides is like we need to save them (laughs) Mm -hmm. and Pyrrha's like we can't both save them and search for the sixth house oversight body it's too dangerous you're gonna give us away Mm -hmm. and we also kind of learn what a shit show Blood of Eden is right now throughout this book which is just like another really interesting kind of political layer on top of every other complicated thing that happens in these books but we learn that there are these different factions um and that Palamides, Camilla and Pyrrha and Nona are part of Wake and Sesaphon wings which is led by we suffer and that we suffer is the one who's basically protecting them right now and has given them this timeline that is like Mm -hmm. you have one year to (laughs) deliver nona to us and what's happening is that there's quite a few fractures in the whole blood of eden system one being maybe your more extremist and violent faction which is unjust hopes faction i think they're called the hopers and, and Unjust Hope is the kind of leader who doesn't give a shit about, you know, hurting anyone. It's like we are, like, using force and violence to our ends no matter what. Right. Those are kind of the two big wings. I think they also mentioned the Merv wing, which is maybe, like, a slightly less radical faction than the Hopers. So I think that basically what it is is that there's... Sesaphon Wing and Merv Wing. Merv Wing is led by Unjust Hope. So the followers of Unjust Hope are Hopers, but they're also additionally. I think those are like, and the Wakers are people who are kind of like the wake me up inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wake me up inside. (laughs) The the wake as in Gideon's mom's wake, that's we suffer and those people and they are Sesaphon Wing. But I think they're just two major branches here that makes sense that makes sense i mean it's confusing yeah definitely (laughs) to keep track of everything because these are also like we're learning new information and we're also learning it through the door right you know in this moment right it's basically you can't really infer much at all until you've read the book and you come back and read it again which is true of all of these books i did have one question from this bit that I was very, I like really don't know. So they're talking about how, you know, basically Palamides wants to be a little bit more aggressive in their push for whatever, saving everyone. And Pyrrha is saying, no, 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 you can't, this isn't going to work. And then she says, 
Or you could take me up on my first offer, which would solve a lot of your problems. And then Palamides says, it was a beautiful offer, Pyrrha, and almost completely useless. There's no retiring our forces in a search and recovery op. In any case, Eden would turn on us completely. I don't, what is he, I don't understand what, what this offer could possibly have been. It's funny, when we prepared for this episode, I reread this section 42 times. Because at first, I was like, oh, this is just Pyrrha making the offer that they'll like all run away together and go live and farm on a moon. But it's definitely not that. <laughs> right. This definitely has to do with like some sort of strategic tactic related to like how they're going to get out of whatever situation that they're in. And I have no idea what it is. I imagine it involves a cost that Palamides was not willing to pay. Um, but I don't really know. I don't really know what. I'm curious if anyone does know. We would like to know. Yeah, let us know what you think. And also, maybe this will become clear as we reread this book yet again. Yeah, definitely. I think the one other thing to pull out from from this conversation is, between Palamides and Pyrrha is Pyrrha kind of goes off on like a little bit of a monologue around how all the people on this planet. There are so many different sides that people are on. Some of them are like pro blood of Eden. Others are like, I just want the houses to get here so that we can have like basic necessities again right. and shit. Like it is just a total shit show of a situation. And Pyrrha says something that I think is like just a really important philosophy that will continue to come up, I think, throughout this book, but then also probably in Electo, which is basically like, it's one thing to unite people around something that you're fighting against. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, we have to figure out like what we're building towards. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, then shit's going to fall apart, which is basically what's happening. And Pyrrha says, we made this mistake before. Right. So, you know, I think Pyrrha is one of the wisest characters in this book, which makes sense because Pyrrha has been around for like 10,000 years. Not that time is a given because there's a lot of unwise 10,000 mm -hmm. year olds in these books. But I feel that Pyrrha, you know, is a flawed character, just like all of them, but also like a really good voice of reason. Yeah. And yeah, just really gives off like dad vibes. <laughs> yeah, in the best way. <laughs> Give me all the Pyrrha you have. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting just for scale. I think we're, we learn exactly how big the sixth house is. So yeah, Palamity says three million people squatting on a Thanergy planetoid millions of kilometers away from us. And we can infer that, you know, from later clues that this is the whole of the sixth house, which they have been able to bamf across the universe to this other location, basically hiding from God. And then... He says 9 million people in the city alone, that's almost as much, or that's as much as the 7th and the 8th together. So we're looking at houses that are approximately 3 to 5 million people a pop. So, I mean, which is a, a lot of people, but also if you think about it, the 9 houses are not that big. No, they're teeny tiny. Yeah. I mean, listen, I live in New York City. New York City is 8 million people. The city Mm -hmm. So, you know, these houses are tiny. Yeah, this is also wherever they all are. Like, this is also a huge amount of people in one place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the numbers in the scaling in the, in these books is really hard, I think, sometimes to wrap your head around. Right. But now we have a, a pretty distinct number, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So after they finish up this conversation, they exit the room and they sort of chastise a little bit Nona for listening, but don't really seem to care. And Camillus takes back over her body again, and they all gather up to leave. And I think the one thing to mention here really quick is that this is the first time that we see there's some sort of blue light in the sky. Nona says that the sky used to be yellow-ish, and now it's blue. And we later learn that this is because there's a resurrection beast. It's actually number seven, which we saw in Harrow. And it's squatted, it's periscoping somewhere near the planet and is turning the whole sky blue. So that's a big thing. Creepy. Mm -hmm. The way that this chapter closes out is they go through this ritual where Pyrrha's like, all right, tell me the like different code words that you need to know. And what do you need to do if the resurrection beast in the sky basically starts attacking and Camilla's like, I'm going to fight. Yeah. <laughs> and Pyrrha's like, no, you're not going to fight. <laughs> what are you doing? And Nona's like, I'm going to hide, but I'm also going to gather all the animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the dogs and, specifically. Yeah. And Pyrrha's like, you're not going to do that. What are you talking about? And there's this funny line at the end where Pyrrha's just like, I used to be the leader of the fucking cohort. And now... Here I am, up against wannabe heroes <laughs> and hairy dogs. This is the punishment she would have wanted for me, which I imagine is referring to Pyrrha's true love, Wake, R.I.P. Rip. <laughs> but that is like the close of the first chapter, and so you, it's, it's a really sweet opening. And I cannot believe that we just spent a whole episode covering two chapters that aren't even that big. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I feel like for the beginning, we really we really had to lay some groundwork. So that's why we chose to do a short section. But going forward, I think we'll be able to finish up more quickly. We're going to be doing small chunks, but not just one chapter. And we're also going to – we're kind of organizing all the, the listener questions, and we're going to insert them in where it makes sense. And then we had some incredible insights come in lately – that I think we're just going to add on to the end of the episode. And that's for stuff from the past. So from as as Unsent and from Harrow and from Gideon and from everything else we've talked about. So yeah, but man, a lot to say just for the first two-ish chapters. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) So thank you guys so much for joining us. If you have questions or comments or want to point out something that we missed, send us a question on our website, locktoompod.com, or on Twitter at locktoompod. And if you liked this podcast, tell your friends to listen or rate and review us wherever you're listening to us. Side note, so much love to the folks who have sent us these sweet, encouraging messages about the pod. Honestly, they make my day every single time. Mel and I always... You send them to each other, just like cry emoji, cry emoji. And I don't want to get all ordus on you, but like I literally have shed a tear or two in gratitude several times. Yeah, getting those getting those little love notes from you all made me realize that I need to be sending more love notes out myself. So yeah. I feel that I have become a better person because of our listeners, which is cute. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Also, thank you to Olivia K for our theme music. I am Amy. And I'm Mel. And we will see you next time here at the Lock Tomb Podcast.